hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. How many of you know a transgender person? Not an acquaintance, but really no one. Know them to the point where they share stories and details about their life with you. So you understand more deeply what they face in their lives. I will admit that John and I don't. We figure that most of you don't either. And at the risk of sounding trite, I'm going to use the much laughed at, the more you know line from PSAs. That's why this week we wanted to scratch the surface on what many trans folks deal with and have available to them when it comes to one of their leading financial costs, healthcare. We're not experts on this topic, so we invited Finn Brigham from Callan Lord, an LGBT-focused healthcare facility in New York, to share info with us. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. Stressing about debt is so COVID-19 2020. No matter how or when you got stuck with your debt, make 2021 the year it disappears. Poof! Sleep better at night. And live happier during the day. I'm a unicorn! Sign up for the credit card payoff plan between January 2nd and January 4th, this 2021, and get a one-time special offer, a free 45-minute 211. Out of the gutter, fellas. Money success session with us, the Debt Free Guys, a $197 value. Cha-ching! Now, on with the show. <laughs> so welcome to Queer Money Finn. We appreciate having you be here with us. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're ready for an education session, I think. <laughs> Time to learn. Okay. So just to kind of lay the groundwork, out of curiosity, how did you get into this world of LGBTQ, but I think maybe especially trans-focused healthcare? That's because it's very, very niched. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, my, my career started in HIV. Um, after I graduated college, I worked at a HIV service organization doing case management and HIV testing, um, program development, that type of thing. And so, you know, LGBT healthcare was certainly a part of that. And then uh, when I moved to New York City, I sort of looked around and thought, where can I work that, you know, with the skills that I've earned? And, you know, Callan Lord is well known, at least in the LGBT healthcare world, as sort of the, the gold standard of, of LGBT care. And I wanted to work at a place where the mission met my values and that it was sort of a place that I could learn and grow more. I hadn't worked specifically in medical care in the past. Um, so I started working at Callan Lord. And then, you know, I think, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but transgender health is, to me, super exciting. It's sort of the the newest, most innovative type of, of healthcare that I wanted to focus on. And so being transgender myself, as well as now being at Callan Lord, that was really getting its feet under it in terms of uh, learning about transgender health, I put a lot of my focus there. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. It's nice to see that you maintain kind of the the 
desire to help the community and grow your career at the same time, that's not something that you could do in all industries. So uh, it's nice that you've done that. So when it comes to transgender health care, we, I think, at a very high level, all of us just kind of assume and say, yeah, this is different. Maybe you could, without going super deep, explain to us what are some of the things that make transgender healthcare different? Sure. It's a great question. So I think a few things come to mind. One is that there are very few providers in the country or in the world, for that matter, that are trained in LGBT healthcare and especially transgender healthcare. Even providers that are well intentioned or happy to serve the transgender community just don't get the knowledge that they need to know how to do it well. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's different, right? Most people could go to a, a primary care physician anywhere in the country and ask the basic healthcare questions that one might have, and that healthcare provider should be pretty able to, to any healthcare issue that you have, they should be able to help you. When it comes to transgender care, that's just not the case for the vast majority of primary care physicians. There's also a a stigma uh, associated with transgender health, unfortunately. You know, in in some ways, it's sort of similar to HIV stigma, that patients face discrimination in healthcare, um, and elsewhere for that matter, not just in healthcare. So trying to access transgender healthcare can be quite intimidating for people because they're worried about the discrimination that they may face. The last thing I'll say that makes it a little bit unique is that the for the vast majority of states and the vast majority of health insurances, transgender healthcare is not covered. So again, most medical issues that folks have will be covered by their insurance, including HIV care. But for, again, most states and, and most insurances, uh, transgender health, including hormones and surgery, are not covered. Right. So folks, as we cover this topic, you can kind of understand why in the outset, I said that this is something that many of us just aren't aware of because even the medical field doesn't have the information or is not learning the information, which means many of us are probably not hearing about it in the general media or in the types of things that we read or listen to. And that's why we are definitely wanting to cover this topic so that we can be the kind of advocates and allies for other folks in our queer community that we have had either inside or outside the queer community in the past. So it's nice to start delving into this. Now, you kind of mentioned some of these common issues, things like discrimination, that there's just this kind of lack of knowledge or lack of desire to serve the community, maybe even, I guess, maybe some fear are there some other common issues that you're seeing trans folks face when it comes to healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the discrimination, unfortunately, is the biggest barrier. I think, um, again, as I mentioned, that, that even a well-intentioned provider doesn't have the training that they need. Transgender healthcare is not covered in most medical trainings or nursing trainings. Even if a medical school maybe has, you know, one class on LGBT health, it's usually focused on gay men and HIV risk. It's not focused on transgender care. So, you know, for some examples that, that your audience might understand, you know, a transgender woman, say, who's perhaps gotten breast implants might go to a doctor and say, you know, is my my breast cancer risk the same as a cisgender woman or a non-trans woman? You know, how often should I be getting mammograms? And again, even the well-intentioned provider might say, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know how to 
guess your, your breast cancer risk. Mm-hmm. Um, or a transgender man saying, you know, I've been on testosterone for five years now. Is it important that I get a hysterectomy? And again, a doctor saying, I, I really don't know. And so a lot of transgender folks feel like they need to become their own medical care providers. A lot of internet research is done. There's a lot of communities online to try to, you know, piece these things together ourselves, which is obviously not ideal. Um, it's, you know, you want your doctor to have these answers. So I think that those are the common issues that come up is just, you know, we're all just forging forward the best way we can. I think it's, you know, reasons that places like Cal and Lord have such demand because it's the only place that folks feel safe, not only in terms of, of safety against discrimination, but safety in terms of competent medical care. Right. Absolutely. So I'm wondering if for some of what you just mentioned, you know, to know whether or not you need to get mammograms or whether or not you should get a hysterectomy are are sort of fundamental primary care questions. Does that then require transgender folks to seek out uh, specialists? It depends. You know, as I was talking about transgender healthcare nationally, you know, there are LGBT healthcare providers in many of our large cities, but when you get outside of those cities, it can be really difficult and, and certainly not in all cities. So I think when you are able to access an LGBT competent provider or clinic, you shouldn't need a specialist unless there's something wrong, right? I mean, most folks can imagine what they, they go to their primary care physician, um, you know, they check their blood pressure, they check their do lab results, whatever, they probably will do a breast exam, these types of things, and only if they find a lump will they send them to a specialist. Specialist. Mm-hmm. So, so specialty care may be necessary in the same way it's needed for cisgender, uh, again, non-trans folks. But I think that folks often feel like they need to seek out specialty care mm-hmm. for any trans health issue, which is not necessarily the case. You know, I, I, I want to envision a world and I hope for a world in which transgender healthcare is not a specialty, that any primary care physician can do the base amount of care as they would for any other person. Um, and it shouldn't be considered a specialty. Got you. Yeah, I guess I should know this number, but I I don't. Do you have an idea of about how many trans folks there are? And let's just say in the US for now, because that kind of makes it a little bit easier for us to understand. Sure. That's actually a great question. So there's a lot of different estimates about how many transgender folks there are um, in the country. It's certainly over a million, but I think that those numbers are often underestimated and the definition of transgender has evolved over the years. You know, I'm sure many folks have heard of the terms of gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender expansive, et cetera. And so, you know, what it means to be transgender is evolving. And I think, and I'm generalizing here, but the younger community is more likely to embrace those types of terms. And I think that that population will expand or already has expanded. Um, but a rough estimate that is often agreed upon is a million or two out a million and a half. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because there are roughly about that many, uh, just under estimated to be under a million doctors in the United States. And so the percentages of doctors that are available for folks that have this specialty clearly is it, it, there's this massive divide between the number of doctors who would have this specialty or understanding and the number of folks that are out there. I can't just imagine what it's like less than if you had less than half a percent, which is similar to the number of trans folks in the United States for doctors, you're talking about a couple of thousand doctors in the whole United States that would have this. And like you said, they're probably concentrated for the most part in some of these major cities, which just, 
Yeah, I, it, it makes me it feel for the trans folks who are living in rural, small towns, or even some of the medium-sized towns of 250,000 or less, there, there probably just isn't anyone there to serve them. Well, maybe the government's Absolutely. helping. <laughs> we cannot overemphasize how difficult it can be for transgender folks to access competent care. We could talk for an hour about it, and I, I couldn't overstate it. Yeah. What do you think seems to be the... I mean, I, I know I can probably assume, but I don't want to. What What would you say are the biggest barriers to allowing that, to allowing adequate health care for trans folks? Yeah, I think I think there's a few barriers. I mean, as I mentioned, this this is just not trained in school. So so even if you have a provider that wants to do this care, they don't know how to access the information that they need. There are some ways that people are trying to address that, but even if you have the will, um, it can be hard to know what to do. And I think that can cause fear in providers that they're going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, and so then they just don't really want to embrace this population for fear that they might mess up. Right. Right. Makes sense. And, you know, I, I guess that that is a very real fear, right? If you don't have adequate knowledge about any topic, you don't want to talk about that topic. You want, don't, definitely don't want that to be your job, right? So I understand the hesitation to go into the field, especially if you're in an area where there wouldn't be a high concentration of folks. Do you think that the way that the federal or state government has made it more or less difficult for trans folks to get health care may have contributed to this? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot that the state and federal government can do to make it easier or harder on transgender folks. Your audience probably is aware of examples of sort of outright discrimination put in place by the federal or state government, such as the ban on transgender folks serving in the military or not allowing transgender folks to legally adopt children. So those are sort of really clear ways. When it comes to health care, former President Obama, and I'm going to try not to get too granular here, put language into the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as folks may know it, that stated clearly that insurance companies could not discriminate based on sex. That law or that that part of the Affordable Care Act has been used to argue that you should not be able to discriminate in insurance for transgender health care, saying if you don't include transgender health on your insurance policy, you are discriminating based on sex. So that was really helpful. So that was an example of ways that then federal government really did support taking away discrimination in health care for transgender folks. I live in New York and in the state of New York, that law was used to really push forward transgender health care being covered by all insurances. And then our governor also held that up and, and even further said, you cannot discriminate. So any insurance that is operating in the state of New York, whether it is Affordable Care Act, whether it is Medicare, whether it is Medicaid, private insurances have to cover transgender health care. I will say Medicare is the one exception because that is a federal insurance piece that, that the states can't make laws about. So that, that one's a little more complicated whether or not trans health care is covered. But so things that were in the Affordable Care Act really helped. You know, I'm sure folks are aware that President Trump has tried to dismantle several parts of the Affordable Care Act. And depending on how that all shuffles out, it could lead to these transgender health care that are covered being denied. So, you know, these are examples of ways that governments can help or, or make it harder for trans mm-hmm. people to access health care. Yeah. I guess I'll ask the question, do you think that most folks when they, non-trans folks and most folks who are not necessarily aware of these issues, even inside the LGBT community, do you think that we confuse 
the healthcare for trans folks and transitioning costs. That、mm. there's this kind of we don't want to pay for, and I'm going I'm going to go askew towards the mentality of the right here. We don't want to pay for someone's sex change, right? Sure. Versus these are medical necessities that all of us have, but they need to have. For lack of a better way of saying it, maybe the trans twist on it—that there are these health issues that all folks have, but we have to take into account that this person is transgender or non-binary. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and you know, certainly, I, I you know, I've heard the argument I shouldn't have to pay for you know someone's、uh, sex change, and I think that th- there's a few things I will say. First off, surgery is is only one part of transgender health, right? right. I mean, trans people need you know they get strep throat, they get broken arms, they get cancer,、um, and any of the other things that、uh, cisgender folks get, and so I think focusing transgender health solely on surgery is missing a very large part of what transgender healthcare is. Right.、Um, That said, I would even argue、um, that it is important that we pay for people's surgery. You know, there is there is data that shows that when folks are able to access hormones and surgery, they are less likely to have substance use issues. They are less likely to have mental health issues. They are less likely to commit suicide. They are less likely to be homeless. So, you know, all of these things that government taxes do pay for can actually be alleviated by folks accessing transgender healthcare, even if we're specifically talking about hormones and surgery. And there's a larger sort of ethical argument, if you will, about you know how we define transgender health by a mental health diagnosis versus. Strictly a medical treatment, there is a mental health diagnosis that can help transgender folks to access care. Because if you have this specific diagnosis as a transgender person, then insurances say, "Well, I have to cover this because you have this diagnosis." So it can be helpful to open doors. The downside is a lot of transgender folks, including myself, would argue that. Being transgender is not a mental health issue; it's a medical issue. And so, if we look at it as the lens of simply a medical issue, I think it can be easier to wrap your brain around why it is important for this type of medical care to be covered. You know, we wouldn't argue that somebody, if they have any other medical condition, should be able to get that medical condition treated. And I would advocate in the same way for transgender health. Absolutely, that makes a hundred percent sense here. How does your bank support the LGBT community? Not at all. For Pride in June. Or 365 days a year, Capital One proudly supports the LGBT community throughout the year. Maybe it's time to support a bank that supports us. Go to debtfreeguys.com/cafe for more info. Stop stressing about your debt. Sleep better at night and live happier during the day. Sign up for the credit card payoff plan between January second and January fourth, twenty twenty one, and get a one time special offer: a forty five minute two one one money success session with us, the Debt Free Guys. A one hundred ninety seven dollar value for free. So we've kind of covered this idea that there are some challenges, some issues. There's the discrimination, and we see a lot of that. Based on what the states are doing, but also what the insurance companies are doing. So, insurance companies oftentimes will default to what the states tell them that they can or can't do. So, what are some of the resources then that trans folks have, either for transitioning or for the care needed immediately after or long-term care, just general health care? 
if they don't have insurance or regardless of if they have insurance? I think that maybe we can kind of take both sides of it. Folks who have insurance, they're probably going to be looking for resources. But I think predominantly folks who are running into this issue where my state or my insurance doesn't cover these kinds of healthcare costs, what can they do? Yeah, so so there's there's a few things, but as you highlight, it, it is really challenging. You know, let's take the best case scenario. You know, say like in the case of New York, insurance does cover hormones and surgery. You still have this barrier of can I find a provider that is competent and willing to care for me that takes the insurance that I have, right? So even if you find this this magical primary care physician, say it's at Cal and Lord, <laughs> and you want to access surgery, you still have to find a surgeon that knows what they're doing, that takes your insurance. It can be really difficult. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through if you have insurance to get surgery paid for. There's visits to a therapist. There's letters that have to be written, pre-approval, various health criteria have to be met. So even in the, this is the best case scenario, you know, the, the resources exist in terms of some competent providers and some very competent surgeons, but they can be, because there's so few, they can be really hard to access. You know, one of the that I would argue one of the best surgeons in New York City has literally a two-year wait list just to have a consultation. Wow. So, and and that's assuming you have insurance and all of you know your ducks in a row. So then then you're waiting that long even just to to have the conversation about it. So, mm-hmm. and again, that's the best case scenario. We know those ducks in a row can change from week to week, year to year. So that's, Absolutely. that's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as, a, as an example, most surgeons have a certain BMI that you have to be under in order to access the surgery. So a certain weight that you have to be under. And additionally, you are not allowed to smoke for a certain amount of time before your surgery and they'll literally do a nicotine test. So imagine if you will, you have to quit smoking and lose weight at the same time leading up to a stressful event in your life. Right. Um, that yeah. can be really difficult, especially if we're talking about two years. Right. Um, so yes, and, and again, those are the best case scenarios. So worst case scenario and, and more common, you live in a state that insurance does not cover uh, this type of care and you cannot access competent surgeons or uh, primary care physicians. And so you know what folks will do is save up their own money to try to access these surgeries. Depending on the type of surgery it is, it can cost up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so you know that can mean people putting off college, putting off buying a home, buying a car, uh, you know, you could save for 10 years and then all of that nest egg just be gone so that you can access surgery. Or a lot of folks will travel out of the country to access surgery because it's much cheaper. And there are some some good surgeons outside of the country, but it's definitely more of a risk. And depending on the type of surgery you're having, you may need to stay near that surgeon for up to a month, um, sometimes more. And so those travel costs and then thinking about, you know, whatever, depending on your job, you probably have to leave your job for a certain amount of time in order to do this. So, you know, when folks do not have the insurance that they need, it can be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to access this type of care. Wow. There's just so much to unpack there. (laughs) And, you know, it just, uh, it makes me think about, I said in the outset, in the introduction of this show that so many of us don't know trans folks well enough that they share this kind of information with us, that they tell us their stories. And that's, this is why it's so important for us to understand, like I said at the beginning, scratch the surface on some of these issues, because it helps us understand why there's so much more work that still needs to be done to help others in our community. 
Absolutely. I think it's so wonderful that you all focus on these types of things because you're right. Uh, there's Even if you're in the LGB community, it doesn't mean that you understand all of the difficulties that trans folks may face when trying to access healthcare. Correct. Yeah. So in our discovery interview, you brought up a, a challenge that I'd never even thought of. Uh, so let's discuss that if you don't mind. What happens when the gender marker conflicts with the sex-specific care that someone might need? So, for example, needing to go to an OBGYN or getting mammograms, as you mentioned earlier, or even uh, prostate care. There's a very sex-specific healthcare needs. Um, what happens when that conflicts with the gender marker? Certainly. So... Gender markers are the M's and F's that are on so many of our identity documents. So on you know, a state ID or a driver's license, on a passport, we have these M's and F's on our birth certificate. And for some trans people, changing those gender markers is a really important part of their transition. You know, you can imagine if you pass as a man, so say you're a transgender man, you were assigned female at birth and now live as a man, maybe you have a full beard, you've had surgery on your chest, so you you very much look like a man in every way, and then you have to show your passport, say, uh, at the TSA when you're getting on a plane and it says you're female, obviously that can produce a lot of anxiety and, and quite often discrimination. So for some people, changing those gender markers is really important. But there are some downsides to changing those gender markers. And, and for example, if you are the same transgender man and then you go to um, access uh, GYN care, which many trans men, most trans men still need to do. So you go and you get this care as you need to keep yourself healthy. And the insurance company says, huh, a man going to a gynecologist, that's clearly an error. And they'll just outright deny the care. You know, on the other side, a transgender woman trying to access a mammogram um, or a prostate exam, which she uh, still very well may need. And and again, it looks like a mismatch in the system and these things are just denied, in which case you either just pay for it out of pocket because you don't want to have to call the insurance company and explain it, or you have to call the insurance company and explain it, which can be embarrassing and, and you can face discrimination and just be quite anxiety producing for any person to go through. I think, you know, part of Callan Lord's work is trying to do that sort of back of house work on behalf of our patients, you know, calling the insurance companies, advocating for them, explaining the situation so our patients don't have to do that. But, you know, these are examples of things that you may or may not be able to change your gender marker and that may mm -hmm. or may not help you in terms of your insurance. Wow. So just out of curiosity, and we don't necessarily need to name any, any companies, but are you starting to see some insurance providers that are doing a really good job with this versus the rest who are doing a crappy job? <laughs> uh, sure. I, I mean, I, w I won't name a ton of names, but uh, I will name one name only because they are doing a fantastic job. Uh, unfortunately, as far as I know, they're only a New York product, but there's a, a insurance company called Amedicare in New York. And they got started really focusing on the HIV community. Um, and what was beautiful about that, or I mean, the, the sad part is that there are a lot of transgender folks that are HIV positive. So they started seeing that a lot of the folks they were insuring while focusing on the HIV community community were transgender. And so they went the extra mile of, of covering these services before they needed to. And in addition to continuing to cover these services, there are still a lot of things insurance doesn't cover. For example, in order to have a successful surgery, in most cases, you need to access uh, laser hair removal before your surgery specifically genital surgery. It can really help to reduce the chances that you'll have an ingrown hair, which could lead to infection. There's there's a lot of really good reasons it's important to have laser hair removal before you have uh, a genital surgery. 
And so even if your insurance company covers your surgery, they often don't cover that. Mm -hmm. uh, but Amedicare does. Mm -hmm. um, Amedicare, uh, there's been examples of them paying for someone to stay in a hotel if they need to you know, go to New York City from upstate in order to access uh, surgery. So there's sort of all these associated costs that if you're lucky enough to even get your surgery covered, rarely are covered by insurances. And they, they really have tried to figure out what all those extra costs are and get them covered. And I will mention ones that, that aren't good because frankly, Frankly, uh, unless your state mandates it, the vast majority of insurances would never choose to cover it, which right. I understand, you know, they're in the business of making money. But, you know, so I, I would say the vast majority of insurance companies just don't unless they're forced by the state. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Last week on our podcast episode, we were talking about the reasons why retirement will be more expensive, potentially more expensive for folks in the in the LGBT community. And this kind of highlights why some folks in our community simply may not be saving what they should be or could be saving for retirement, because they have to cover all of these expenses that that the rest of us, and I'm kind of lumping myself in there because I am a cis gay man, and when it comes to healthcare, almost everything that I need is covered when it comes to healthcare. Uh, so it makes kind of makes that apparent there is this financial challenge associated with healthcare and folks who are uh, outside that binary spectrum. Absolutely. And a, and a lot of folks try to access these surgeries, you know, when they're young, you know, late 20s, early 30s, maybe, and it really just puts them behind in terms of the financial uh, milestones we all try to meet, you know, in terms of starting uh, some sort of retirement plan, in terms of buying a home, if you can, in terms of perhaps pursuing uh, higher education, uh, you know, all these things we try to do to set ourselves up for success financially in the long term, may be taken from, from trans folks if, if they need to use that money for surgery. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it sounds there are so many different considerations with trans healthcare, including and specifically with with transitioning. Who in the trans community are faced with the most pressing issues with healthcare, maybe today? Thank you for asking that. And, and I, it, unequivocally, I would say is transgender women of color. I think, you know, in, in almost every marker of health, unfortunately, um, that population is falling behind. I think that, you know, we all can understand uh, how intersectionality works and, you know, trans women can be discriminated against because of their gender identity, because of their race as, and because of their gender. You know, they face higher rates of physical violence. Uh, again, they have the poorest health outcomes in the transgender community, the highest rates of HIV. So I think transgender women of color in particular really are facing, unfortunately, the, the most discrimination and the most pressing issues with healthcare. One other population that I would highlight, and you sort of mentioned it, are the aging trans folks. I think that most uh, sort of assisted living facilities and nursing homes are segregated by sex. And so as transgender folks now age and may have to go into these types of facilities, there's a lot of fear of how they'll be treated, especially if they aren't able to advocate for themselves. So I hope in my lifetime, we start to see more of those types of facilities that are focused on the LGBT community and more able to assist the transgender community. But right now, that's definitely something that can be really scary. Yeah, I appreciate both you sharing both of those. The latter one about trans folks going into LGBT specific care facilities. You know, John, John and I wrote an article, and and we talked about this one last week as well. That we have found basically twenty two LGBT focused retirement 
communities slash assisted living facilities. And there is no way that even those 22 could cover just the trans folks in the community. There's definitely a demand and a need for more LGBT-focused care facilities when it comes to when we age. And I hate to be so callous about this, but the only way that that's going to happen is if there's the money to support that happening, both inside the community and federally. And we know the desire to help it federally is probably not there. So that means as a community, we need to figure out how to start encouraging more facilities to be built that will take care of us as we age. And that means we need to have the money now. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And unfortunately, that is probably the, the biggest driver for it. And now is the time to start talking about that, right? I mean, I think the LGBT community is aging. And for better or worse, I think, you know, when the HIV pandemic was raging, you know, a lot of gay men didn't live until a time when they needed, you know, to be in nursing homes. And, you know, all of that's changing, which is wonderful, but there is this huge need and and very few facilities that do focus on that. I try to be hopeful that, you know, as time goes by, there are more and more family members advocating for this, that there's more, you know, doctors and nurses in these facilities advocating for this. And so, you know, similarly, Cal and Lord would love to work ourselves out of business and that we don't need an LGBT specific (laughs) healthcare, you know, it's, we're not there now, but someday hopefully it doesn't need to exist. And I hope the same that, you know, nursing homes and assisted living don't need to be LGBT specific in order to be competent. Certainly not there yet, but that's my hope. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned New York and New York City a lot, and that could be because that's where you're from, but are there are there similar providers like Cal and Lord outside of New York City and even New York State? Yeah, so there are many uh, other LGBT-focused health centers around the country. You know, the ones that that jump into my head, there's one in Philadelphia, there's one in Washington, D.C., one in Boston, one in Chicago, uh, San Francisco, um, Los Angeles. There might be some other ones that I don't know about, but those are the ones that I know of. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some more, a a lot of university-based healthcare systems are at least focusing more and more on this type of care or being at least aware that it exists. So things are changing, but there is still a huge dearth. And I think that, again, especially outside of major cities, folks can need to drive, you know, four or five, six hours even to just get a primary care physician that that knows anything about this. So there are other calendar type facilities, mm-hmm. um, but there's the, the need far outweighs the ones that exist. Yeah, sure. exactly. I think just the way you put it, There's one in Philadelphia, there's one in Boston, there's one in Chicago. I mean, these are cities with multiple millions of people living in them. And we know that that means that there are thousands of trans folks who need these services. Again, pointing out that inadequacy. Yeah, you kind of mentioned this, but just just to confirm, can folks not living in New York City area benefit from Kellen Lord? That's a really interesting, timely question. Right now, there are folks, again, if folks are familiar with New York State, at least New York City, sort of there's this tri-state, which is Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. And so a lot of folks live outside of New York City in another state and, and work and commute and get healthcare in the city. So we definitely have some patients that come from outside of New York City, but it's certainly around the area of New York City, you know, two hours or so. But telehealth, because of the pandemic, is really something that has uh, is expanding healthcare everywhere, and is sort of a brave new world of the potential for folks to access care from very far away. 
again, without getting too into the nitty gritty, the regulatory uh, laws around insurance make that really difficult right now. You know, currently you have to be licensed as a provider in a state in order to serve patients in that state. So even if we wanted to say we can do telehealth with patients in Kansas, legally we can't right now. But we would like to be able to, because again, we know these places that it's really hard to get this care are the places that need us the most. And so we are very willing to serve those communities and we would love to, but we can't legally right now. I'm really hopeful that one of the silver linings of the pandemic can be that as telehealth becomes more and more common, these regulatory laws around insurance will change because mm-hmm. the demand will be there to say, hey, if I can see you know, LGBT healthcare aside, if there's a, a heart condition specialist you know, in Ohio and I live in Nevada and I can see them via telehealth and they're the best in the world, I want to be able to do that. So I, I think that the laws will change. I think it will take some time. But again, that's that's sort of a real-time question because the right. pandemic has changed things in regards to telehealth. Yeah. I, I'm going to pull a McDonald's and Starbucks here, but it sounds like Callan Lord needs a franchising plan and a big sponsor slash donor slash effort I mean, from the community to help this if happen. If you know anyone, I, please post my phone number uh, for everyone to access because, because yeah, I mean, we, we would we would be happy to expand exponentially if, if, if we were able to do such a thing. It's just going to take some time on, on the regulatory side. Yep, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Well, it, you know, and I will say, the whole the the way we were introduced to you and Callan Lord was through our partnership with Capital One. Capital One has for a long time been supporting education financial education for the LGBT community via our podcast and and things that they do in their own cafes. But they've also been a huge supporter of organizations across the country that are supporting the LGBT community. So they have been helping you and supporting you how how has that helped your mission yeah, they, you know, Capital One has really sort of walked the walk, if you will, with us and not just given us a donation here and there without really getting involved and understanding the work that we do. Uh, and they do support a lot of LGBT organizations. So, you know, over the years, they've they've done things like donate to some of our events. We have a, a run in the spring and an annual gala. They've also done some specific support for the work we do with youth. So we have an adolescent LGBT health program and they have supported that. They've also helped us with some cool projects. You know, we opened a new site in Brooklyn during the pandemic and they were able to produce a video about that that we can now use to show people the work that we've been doing during the pandemic in regards to Brooklyn. And they've even had some of their staff come on site uh, and volunteer, you know, to work at our events or even um, they came and put together safe sex kits that we gave out at Pride in New York. So they've been really great partners and we're very grateful to them. Awesome. I, we will we will get a copy of that video and make sure we put it on the show notes of this this episode. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's a lot of talk about capitalism permeating into pride, and people have a lot of uh, frustration with that. But to your point, Capital One obviously has a great representation at Pride, but they are also there 24 seven, 365, and. Um, for example, this show would not be able to be produced and continue if it wasn't for Capital One. And this is a week-to-week project for us, similar to what it sounds like you're experiencing at Cal and Lord. Yes, for sure. They're, they're wonderful partners, and we're, we're very, very grateful and, and hope that we continue to collaborate. So enough with the Capital One commercial. <laughs> what about the rest of us? Because John and I continually, and 
for those of you who listen to this podcast regularly, you hear us say this over and over again, that the support has to come from inside the community as well. We cannot continually rely on government organizations, corporations to always support our community. We have to become self-sustaining as much as we can. So what can we as folks do John and I live in Las Vegas. You're in New York. What can folks who are not in the New York area do to help? Sure. So, I mean, I I will focus a couple things first on folks that live in New York and then talk about um, broadly, you know, folks all over the country or all over the world for that matter. You know, in New York, there's there's a couple things. There's something, and again, I don't want to get too specific, but that we're facing a huge challenge around, it's called a 340B. Long story short, um, that are some some regulatory rules in the state of New York that really help to keep us afloat. Uh, it has to do with the way that we are able to purchase medicine and sell it back to our patients through our pharmacy. It's been really something that's kept us afloat all of these years, and there's current guidance that wants to change that and will really take the safety net away from all federally qualified health centers that have uh, pharmacies in any state. But if you live in New York and you can go for, for one second um, to saveNYSafetyNet.com, be super helpful to have the support and just say, you know, please keep these laws the way they are. The federally qualified health centers need this funding to stay open. As I mentioned also, we have a new site in Brooklyn that is taking new patients. We have not been open to new patients for many years simply because the need was so great and we couldn't expand. And we did expand to Brooklyn. Um, So we are taking new patients in Brooklyn if anyone is looking for an LGBT competent provider. More largely speaking across the country or across the globe, I think speaking up about LGBT healthcare in general, you know, having platforms like this, having these conversations is very important. I, you know, challenge everyone when they go to a healthcare provider to look at, say, the intake forms and say, you know, does it ask? for your preferred pronoun? Does it ask for your gender identity? If it asks for your marital status, does it include partnered? Folks can advocate at every dentist office, at every uh, emergency room, wherever they go to access care, the dermatologist, just to make sure that it's inclusive. That goes a long way. Um, you know, providers listen when their patients ask them questions. I will also say that we do national uh, and international, for that matter, training on LGBT health. So, you know, if you are going to a clinic in Kansas and you don't feel like they're being competent, you feel like that they could use some support. Um, we can do a virtual training with them to help them understand what the important parts of LGBT competent care are, how they can do better. Um, so they can just go to our website, which is Callan-Lord dot org and get some information about how to access training so that hopefully we can help all of these clinics across the country and again across the world ideally to be better serving of the lgbt community thank you finn Uh, appreciate that folks we're going to make sure that we have the links to 340b and calvin lord's website on our show notes page. And for all you folks who are listening in the New York area, please do what you can. If you're on our email list, you're going to get an email about this as well. So lastly, Finn, is there anything that we have not discussed here that you would like to convey to our listeners when it comes to Callan Lord's mission and supporting the especially trans folks in the healthcare area? 
You know, I think that the the one thing I try to leave most folks with when I do um, some of these trainings that I mentioned is that if you have young people in your life, to let them know that it doesn't matter to you if they are LGBT, you love them unconditionally, you will be here for them. I think so many youth don't hear that message from their parents for a variety of reasons. And just having one person in their world that they know support them can literally save their lives. Great, Rick. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for educating us today, for giving us an insight as to what many folks in our community deal with on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis when it comes to their healthcare that the rest of us are privileged enough to not have to deal with. Uh, So thank you again for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. Finn, thank you for taking time out of your day to help us help our community of Queer Money listeners learn more about queer healthcare. I'll admit, listening to the descriptions of what so many trans folks face to get the care they need to survive made me a little emotional. By the way, yes, I do cry at movies. It just reminds me that there is still a lot of pain and challenges in our community. And those of us who are privileged enough to not face those shouldn't lose sight of that. Here's your Queer Money takeaway for this week's show. As we head into the new year, make it a goal of yours to get to know more trans folks and do what you can to help diminish the pain and challenges these folks are facing. Just like many of us have benefited from our allies doing this for us in the past. If you're in New York, make sure you become aware of the 340B legislation via the link on our site or Callan Lord's. If you're not in New York, support Callan Lord and similar organizations financially. Remember, a $20 cocktail helps our lives for the moment, but that same $20 given to an organization like Callan Lord helps change lives. Thanks again for listening to the Queer Money Podcast. We really appreciate it. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next year. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.